Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Lee Davies. He described himself recently as a right mess, but we call him hugely and diversely talented as Lee is a designer, art director, writer and strategist with an interest in all things marketing, design and behavioural science related. Hailing from Cheshire, he's been designing great work for the creative brand communications agency Peter and Paul for 12 years, the last two of which have seen him sat in the position of creative director. Lee says, a good branded piece of work has language at its heart. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thanks very much. I feel like because uh, because of the sort of level of luminaries that you've had on your show, I feel quite honoured to have been asked, so thanks very much. Oh, it's good to have you here. So we start off with our quick fire questions, Lee. So there's seven to put to you. Tea or coffee? It's got to be tea, hasn't it? Yorkshire, presumably. Yeah, well, if we're going to play the stereotypical uh, <laughs> card, yeah. That's what we're all about here. <laughs> uh, pen or pencil? Uh, I think, yeah, pencil's nice to feel like you're kind of an artist, really, rather than, you know, doing a kind of, like, pen-pushing job. Late nights or early starts? Oh, it used to be late nights, and now it's got to be early starts. There's no choice, really. Form or function? Oh, God. Uh, I think I'd have to say, I'm going to cop out and say both. Serif or sans serif? Uh, depends. Uh, you can't possibly choose between the two of them. These aren't meant to be easy. <laughs> Go for sans then. It makes me sound like a spotter. I'm really not a type spotter. Uh, this one's ridiculous. Lorem or Ipsum? <laughs> Lorem. And finally, Peter or Paul? Oh, God. I can't. Um, I'm going to go... Yeah, I can't do that either. It's got to be both. I mean, it's got to be both, hasn't it? You expect me to go into work tomorrow and not be killed. <laughs> oh, dear. No, that's fine. Well played. Now, Lee, I'm clearly familiar with some of your background, more so perhaps than our listeners, seen as we were on the same degree course. But can you tell us how your career started and how you ended up in Sheffield? So, I, well, I grew up in uh, a little town in the northwest of England, in Cheshire called Middlewich, which is like a kind of, it's a bit of a tragically uncultured, uncultural place, as in it's just a small town with a canal running through it, so there's not really, there's not really any sort of art and design culture at all. You know, the first time I went to an art gallery, I think I was about 18, 19, so I was really late to it. So, but I did do that thing that a lot of young kids do where you know that you can draw and then you just think, well, that's got to be, it's like my only option. Now, we had quite a, an all right sort of art and design college um, in a neighbouring town, which I went to, and just sort of properly focused on art and design as being the only real way out of there, and ended up getting into Bristol at a time when, I, really, I didn't really know much about Bristol at all. In fact, I don't even really know why I chose it. I think it was just because somebody else at our college was going there. Kind of really liked it. But when I got there, was I had to play catch-up, really, because I was quite... I was around quite well-schooled, you know, artistic people, certainly in the house that I lived in. And having come from where I'd come from, you know, the reason why I was into art and design really was because I could draw and quite liked comics. So I was pretty behind the curve. And so when I got to Bristol, met quite a lot of quite intelligent, you know, middle class uh, people that had come out of really good courses. And it was just, uh, yeah, it was quite a bit of a culture shock. I remember talking, because our newspaper in Middlewich was called the, the Middlewich Guardian. 
And I didn't know that there was another Guardian newspaper. So I went to Bristol and met some people and they used to like have discussions about what they'd read in the Guardian. And I was like, what, you can't, what, you get the middle witch guard? Like it was kind of really having to play catch up, I think. But Mm. being in Bristol was a really good place to do that. And I think the people that we met on our course, I mean, I always think about studying there as the people that you study with, they're just as kind of inspirational as the people that teach you, aren't they? And I I was Mm. really, yeah, still good friends with lots of people from there. And, you know, just being, I remember somebody that we're still friends with in our student house was, she was on fine art. So she was doing this project where, she was making plaster cast almost um, teardrops, if you like, putting them into balloons and hanging balloons. And so they were making these sort of teardrops, but this was for a self-portrait <laughs> project. And it just completely like, I, this. I was not at the races at all, so it was kind of, yeah, it was like quite bizarre to be there. So how did you go from the focus on art and, and drawing then to a career in design? Well, I think that it, I probably started when I went back when I was at college uh, in Cheshire. I think I got into that course thinking that it, graphic design was basically illustration and that that's probably what I was going to do. So obviously there was there was a lot that I learned there about um, you know what graphic design was that there was such a thing as typography and things like that. And I suppose then being at um, Bristol and having that kind of freedom which it gave you it did it did give us quite a lot of freedom that course to sort of find your feet uh, as to what you wanted to create. And when I got out of the course, I was quite bookish. Like I, I, you know, it's that typical thing which you see from a lot of design students about designing books. So I thought that um, a kind of life in the world of publishing was probably what was calling. And so kind of dragged my portfolio around London and tried to go to as many studios as I could and go to sort of a few publishing houses, magazines, things like that. Nothing ever really kind of came off and I managed to get a placement in Bristol for a couple of months and that was a a sort of design and branding studio. And then whilst I was there, because they'd given me an email address, I thought, oh, well, now I can email other studios looking like I'm a proper person, you know, like because it was lee at 13.co.uk. So it was like a proper, it wasn't like a, you know, like a hotmail address. So I used that time to try and contact people and then eventually got a job in Nottingham for a while, a little agency called Purple Circle who sadly no longer exist. They were really good. They gave me like tons of rope to hang myself with. They were basically, they just used to let me do whatever I, whatever I was doing really. They didn't. I, my work wasn't really under very much scrutiny there and then ended up coming to Sheffield, working for an agency and meeting Pete and Paul because uh, they worked there too and then was aware of their studio and always really liked the work they were doing and was there f- then just lucky enough to end up there really and that was 12 years ago. Wow and you work from the Testone factory can you tell us a bit more about what that is? So I'd been at the studio for maybe 10 or 11 years we'd initially where we were was in this kind of loft space in a kind of industrial type sort of factory building um warehouse building and then we'd moved to a sort of old school and then it became possible for them to sort of purchase their own building so what happened was we um we commissioned a client so we'd done a piece of work for two architects called Tatum and Tatum and they were setting up a sort of development practice and they they commissioned us to do their branding and name the development practice. We named it Noiscape. And through the process of doing that project, they really, they were a great client actually because they really, they tested us a lot. You know, they, they were quite, they interrogated the work that we were doing a lot. And we just, subsequently we became good friends with them. So we ended up commissioning them to design our new space. And so it's quite interesting because we were like client side of the table then. Um, and I'd never been there before. It was quite mad to to actually have somebody presenting design like back to us. I found that quite a nice experience. And they came in and did this presentation of work where there are three kind of directions to take. And they had this model of the studio out on the table. And each time they discussed a second, like another route, somebody took 
like some little tweezers and moved like moved walls around with these little tweezers and moved like the little cutouts of people and so we were quite involved in the in the process there and then we designed sort of like key objects in the space like there's a huge black sort of table that we all sit around that's massive it ought to have a name really it doesn't yet there's a few kind of other key pieces in there I was probably a bit of a pain in everybody's ass because I was insistent that there be a wall that we could pin work because I really felt like that was a massively important part certainly to the way I work and since that we work in a team you know it's that thing always having the work on show it does enable people to just see stuff from you know like walk past you one day and go oh I was looking at that and uh, I saw this the other day have you tried this about it so yeah so it, there was kind of elements of the space that that we fed into it felt like a real sort of collaborative process really with with James and Tom Tatum doing the space and has has it evolved any more since then or is it have you was it perfect well no actually it's funny you should say that because it's I think that we've been in there for about a year and a bit and I think with any architectural build there does need and in fact actually with any piece of design there does need to be kind of points where you revisit make sure it's still doing the things you need it to do and um, so there'll probably be a bit of a phase two piece of work to be done in that space um, and that just comes as the result of being in it working in it and you know, like finding some things that do work for you and some things that don't. Because because we've got the kind of, we've got the luxury, I suppose, in Sheffield that space is relatively inexpensive. So we've got quite a large space. So we use the space as well as being a studio to work in. We also use it as a place to host kind of other kind of uncommercial creative things, if you like. So we've mm-hmm. had like supper clubs there and an art auction and a synth building workshop so we kind of use it in quite a lot of different ways so it's bound to be the case really that there'll be a point where we just keep revisiting and tweaking really but by and large it, you know like the skeleton of what's there is pretty good and and you use that wall where you stick work up is that something that everyone everyone's incorporated now into how they work <laughs> kind of well yeah. may maybe not i think i think i'm probably the most sort of vocal about that but i sort of need that wall a lot in any work that I do because there's us all working around the same desk as kind of it's totally 50-50 really because you've got that kind of open plan group work thing which is absolutely what you need I think it's definitely what I need but then there are times when you need to do more deep work where you need to get away from that but working in solitary confinement I can't really do that I was actually working uh, did a bit of work on Sunday from the studio and found the whole experience completely weird to be around this massive desk alone I I do kind of need the, to see that work all the time and to also have people tell me what they do or don't like about it it might be a bit needy but <laughs> I think it's just it's just I don't know I think it's definitely just trying to not be secretive about what you're doing make sure you get people to look at it at the earliest point because although you are a bit precious about it um you know as so long as people see it really early then even if you get that little confidence boost of someone going oh that's quite interesting you know then you can push it a bit further and it's that what's that saying uh saying none of us are as good as all of us yeah i'm a bit like i think that's totally where i'm coming from with it really I think, um, so open plan studios, we, we've an open plan studio here. And in fact, we're actually in the process of very loosely planning our next office space. And having that open plan is, as I say, subjective. There's instances where it's probably counterproductive, but you're clearly a fan. Yeah, I mean, it is. there are instances when it's counterproductive. And yeah, there are times when you're doing like more deeper thinking that being a, in a room where there's like lots of potential noise is not great. And I know other people in the studio kind of, they probably suffer with that maybe slightly more than I do, especially because I guess the stage of work that I come in does require quite a lot of discussion. So there are other designers that are working more to kind of deliver a final piece where they will need quiet Um but I don't know. I think that the alternative of not having an open space, I think what you'd be doing is you'd be having a discussion about how that doesn't work either. Do you know what I mean? 
True. Are there any other um, conditions or habits or tips that you think you can share with our listeners that, that do also aid creativity and, and that design process? Well, it's funny because over the years, and this might be a kind of like getting a bit older and getting a bit longer in the tooth, I've tended to come at projects from a, a point that's a bit further back than the actual piece of design, if that makes sense. So you could call that strategy. Um, it doesn't seem to be like a really reliable definition of what strategy isn't, though. Some people have an idea of what it is for them. Um, and what I'm talking about might be something different. I suppose what I'm on about is like the context of the project and who it's for and what the organisation is and who the people are that they want to communicate to the audience. And so changing my mode of work really to really take in that earlier stage has, has done loads for my ability to do the work. So that might mean you're in a situation where you're in a um, a room full of people and you're running a bit of a workshop type thing. But I think it's really important to keep the creative kind of present at that point. So we've just done a project recently, which is a piece of branding for London Borough of Culture, which um, in 2020 is going to be Brent, which is where Wembley Stadium is. Now, obviously, we're a creative studio in Sheffield, so we had to do loads of learning about what the area is all about. So we were running kind of groups, community advisor groups and youth groups, and just doing a few exercises in trying to get to that brief, really. And we had our copywriter who we were working with was in one of those groups and he walks out of the group and he's, he's kind of got the idea. So I think really an aid to creativity for me has been about making sure that line's really blurred between what you might call strategy or the context of the project and then the creative and to not almost have a, have a sort of like defined line between the two because what you don't want as a creative is to have you know, like a kind of load of information that that might be like the positioning, if you like. And then you say to your creative people, right, go off and colour it in, make sure it's not too dull. Yeah, and it devalues that that part of the, the process equally. Yeah, I think it's just what it does is it means that, I suppose you could say that then by keeping that quite fluid, it means that the creative people think a bit more strategically, if you like, and then the strategy is a bit more creative because... I don't know, I think that it's like seeing it as a process where the two things can swap over quite a lot and you're constantly trying to think about how to solve it. But aside from that, I think that, that um, there's that book, isn't there? The te- what is it, A Technique for Producing Ideas? And in that, its basic premise is that get your head into all the information, understand everything about it that you need to, and then completely walk away from it. And I, I definitely subscribe to that because I think most of the better ideas that we've had, certainly I've had, possibly haven't happened actually at the desk. They might be somewhere else. I used to, I went through a bit of a phase of really liking going on little school trips where you were, if you had to do a project for somebody, you went along to, uh, like surreptitiously went along and tried to kind of consume what they wanted you to communicate and then came away with information. We did it once where we had to, do a piece of work for an open day for a university. So I went um, and pretended to be like a, a mature student and uh, got quite a lot of it. So I've had the ideas on the train on the way home, really. Amazing. I called you a writer in the introduction, but I believe by your own admission, you said there may be copywriters you work with who could be listening, who might challenge that definition. But presumably you're, you're being slightly modest there. Yeah. But... Brand identity, to just give you one example, is is clearly a, like a comprehensive mix of both uh, visual and verbal attributes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So how does that? How do you work with language in in what you do? Yeah, because I think uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day. It might have been one of yours. I don't know. I heard a copywriter say, "Oh, you get those art directors that think they can write copy, and we <laughs> have to tell them they can't." And I was like listening to it, thinking, "Shit, is that?" Do I do that? Because I do think that, um, for me anyway, the kind of the language part of the job, and you're dead right, I think, especially if you're doing a piece of brand identity work, for me, the language part of the job is it comes hand in hand really with how you visually kind of execute what you're doing. And because it goes back to working in a small team, there's a team of nine of us, 
And obviously when I started, it was smaller still. And I think what's been really good is I had an interest in copy and words and coming at it from that direction. And so being in a small team, you can kind of drive that development. You know, you can go, well, I'm into that. So maybe we should offer this more as a, as an agency really. So it's definitely, I think that now I think back, I think it's kind of always been there really. I seem to remember having a project in one of my first jobs where I had to lay out an annual report and got sent um, the copy on the Friday from the client and then took it home and read it all. And it was for an annual report for like a building company and it was really boring but I was obviously trying to see if I could get the content to like inform what the form might be so yeah I think the the kind of writing around the work has been really important and and then just trying to do a bit of research and sort of like read up about that really read some kind of quite good stuff that's in the world of copywriting what I do like about that world is they have that discussion a lot more about the end user and the audience than I think the design world does. I think sometimes design world could be a bit guilty of um, getting a bit echo chambery and just focusing on the craft of the work where writing seems to be much more kind of open to having the conversation about who's reading it, what you want them to feel like as a result of reading it, how do you get them to listen, things like that. Yeah, I agree. Um, so then going back to the so brand identity itself, what makes a good brand identity and, and good might not even be the right word I think um, I think maybe effective is a better one I think it's important to strip out subjectivity isn't it when you're when you're working yeah, when you're yeah. doing what we do yeah I mean it's funny isn't it because it I don't even know whether it's like necessarily brand identity but just work as a whole so because I try and keep because um, we, we do creative communication is the way that we talk about it now that can be brand identity work or it can be something like potentially a bit weird like an mm-hmm. event or so I guess that I suppose what makes a good piece of work obviously will be how well the language speaks to you I think that's one thing I think we've always this kind of history of our studio has been that we've always been really focused on having strong ideas in the work which is a bit ambiguous it's hard to know really what that means but um, I think that what's happened is our portfolio of what we've been asked to do has grown because in the early stages when we were doing design projects with quite strong ideas in there, we then got asked to do, you know, like that's why we were getting asked to do ad campaign work because we, we'd obviously demonstrated that we had ideas. So I think that's a really important thing to do within any piece of work, really. The sort of work that I quite like that we haven't done, but other stuff that I see that I really like is I quite like things that are like a bit unrefined, like a little bit, I don't mean ugly, I just mean like a, not really, really polished. So, because that to me sort of translates as like there's an urgency to what's being talked about and like there's an importance to it, if that makes sense. So like, um, you know, Bloomberg Business Week, you know, there's a designer that worked on that called Richard Turley and the work that he did was amazing and quite unrefined, like quite, but probably had loads of refinement gone into it that you can't tell. But just it seemed the work's almost kind of like at times kind of like angry. Um, but I just I don't know. I really like that sort of thing. It's lucky really for me that I quite like work to be a bit kind of undesigned because <laughs> that's kind of a bit like my work. Really. <laughs> well, that that's a nice bridge into BT's new logo and identity. So um, I know the answer, but what are your thoughts on that logo? Well. It's not the thing when I saw that news article that came out about that logo, I think we'd had a day that day of we'd had a few conversations about PR and projects that needed PR. And I guess, uh, I don't know, I just sort of saw that. And it wasn't like I wasn't reacting to the actual design of the logo because, you know, all right, it's not like the best logo you've ever seen. But it was just the fact that there was a news story attached to a black and white logo, which you probably never really see it in that state, you know, like once it's applied. And it just made me think, is is this a sort of ploy? Maybe it was like being really cynical, but it felt like a ploy to get news about your new logo. It was like, I tell you what we'll do is we'll share the black and white version with The Guardian and they'll write one of those pieces, which is like, oh, it cost this much to design the logo. And yeah, it was, it, in a way, I'm like, I'm less bothered about the logo. I'm more upset about the fact that 
maybe it's more important that a shit logo gets news than a good logo is designed. I don't know. It's hard not to be cynical when you when you see things like this. Um, yeah, it's yeah. hard what to believe. But then, then the logo. I mean, context, as you've already said, is is significant here, and and the, you know, the actual application of it is going to look very different to what was shared and what was. Um, kind of widely criticised, but the, the I mean the logo itself in any identity project is literally the tip of the iceberg. There's so yeah. much more needs to go into it. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes, it's easy to judge, especially the Twitterati. It's really easy to judge and make it binary and make it either good or bad. Mm. We're really we're really bad for that. Like as a industry, I think mm. that especially with Twitter, that's probably not helping at all. But that you know, like that kind of getting an absolute battering like a piece of work getting a battering and i don't know i'm just not for that i just think that if you see something you don't like let's probably just leave it and just talk about the stuff that you've seen that's really good or better still do a really good piece of work yourself it's just uh, i think we're a bit guilty of um you know kicking the shit out of a piece of work where it's like i think you've said this before that you know we're just trying to put food on the table and, and also yeah. you don't know um there's there's like there's websites dedicated to oh here's the old logo here's the new one what does everybody think and obviously you get you get loads of people on there that get quite you know like irate at the new logo if they don't like it as much as the old one but you know and it's easy to you know that kind of um argument that like i could have designed better and you think yeah well you possibly you could have done but could you have navigated all the complexity that existed in this job in order to get where we got to, like, could you get all the stakeholders to buy in? Could you get it through all the kind of various hurdles? It's got to jump first. That's why, uh, yeah, I try, I try not to be too kind of cross about other people's creative work, really, because you don't know. They might be seeing that stuff and be really gutted because they put tons of work into it and then everyone's slagging it off left, right and centre. Yeah, equally, Dave Trot, he he'll, he talks about using the language of the profesh- professional um, so, so whether you like it or not is 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 largely irrelevant, or should be irrelevant when you come to being a professional in this industry. And only time will tell if it was an effective evolution of their identity. Without sights of what BT's objectives were for the identity, we can't ever really truly know, I suppose. Yeah. Well, but you're right. You're right. It's so easy to just stick things up and hate at it, but there's so much involvement of so many people and so many variables. But to to steal a previous guest's term it's a false binary it's not good and bad yeah well it's uh what's interesting i think is a few months back um i saw something that was written by it was a copywriter actually where they'd kind of gone they'd say, i can't remember what the piece of work was but they'd gone oh i don't think this really works but then proffered three suggestions as to how it might have been stronger and i thought that was brilliant because no one ever does that and yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that like the response to BT's logo should be people chucking loads of logos about, but it was just quite interesting to get some actual insight from someone who um, was saying, "I don't think this works." Here's another way we could have done it, and actually, the other ways that he wrote the copy were really good. <laughs> so I was like, "Wow, no one ever does that." Like, it'd be great to see more of that, wouldn't it? Yeah, it sounds very refreshing. Uh, so going back to Peter and Paul, do you have a particular? project that you're particularly proud of that you can tell us about yeah it's a tricky one this because obviously there are loads having been involved in loads of different very different types of projects as well i think just to go back to creating kind of identities brand identity work and then rolling those things out it sounds like a total cop-out but actually the project we're working on at the minute (laughs) is going to be Something I think that that's one of my favourite projects that we've ever worked on. And curiously, because it, it being the, the projects for the London Borough Culture, curiously, because it's had to have so much work at the, what you might call the front end, you know, like a lot of discussion before the work began, it's made, I think, the work feel quite well rounded, I think anyway. But other than that, I quite like it when we get involved in projects that seem like a bit odd and they don't fall into the realm of what you might traditionally know as kind of graphic design or brand communication so we did a project where it was for Leeds Arts University and because of the restrictions of the brief it actually made the work actually quite interesting and they were having a a celebration for their 170th year 
and they wanted an exhibition that could be put up and taken down in one night. So obviously that gave us loads of restrictions because if you're going to start making things out of wood, it's not that easy to take down. So the long story short is we worked with a fashion designer to create these like weird sort of large, almost like futuristic garments that sort of came down. Um, and on it was printed the work and they stood on plinths at the at the little party. And it was just good because it was like you could see, well, the process of working with a fashion designer was really interesting. And then actually seeing the work, the exhibition at the event and seeing that, you know, like people were talking to the exhibition and like buying it drinks. <laughs> so it was like it just was. And then working with a group of students which were happy to do that and just trying to coordinate it all. It was I think it goes back to that seeing the work in context, really. And, you know, like actually seeing that the work that you've done has had an impact on some people and changed the situation and created a bit of a like atmosphere. Um, you know, it's quite easy to forget that that's what the work's there to do when you sat at a sort of Apple Mac creating the, you know, the design or creating the graphics. So it was, uh, yeah, I think that goes down as one of my favorites just because it was such a strange project really yeah it's nice having that variety yeah yeah I think it's uh, that's it I think it's like you know what we do is I mean I'm happy for us to do anything that's kind of creative project which helps you know helps any organization really so if that's making garments at a show or if it's a more traditional sort of piece of identity work then that's fine but because I'm a I suppose I'm a bit of a firm believer in like the you know making really good creative work can actually change quite a lot can't it you know clients mm-hmm. want quite big leaps to happen they want sort of disproportionate change to happen and i don't know i've come all the way back round again to go yeah i think the quality of the creative work is what will get us there i'm bound to say that though i suppose <laughs> well please you are you're also um increasingly interested in the behavioral sciences and listeners of this show will already be no doubt familiar with Nudstock that, that you and I both attended recently the other week. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually worked on its new identity. Yeah, well, that came about, it's one of them curious things, really. It's quite often the connections you make are uh, quite often come through the people you know, don't they? So uh, we, a friend of ours has become a behavioural scientist there. So we got the project to um, redesign the identity for Nudgestop, and it was quite—it was quite a sort of um, almost like a, an old-style project for us. Is that it was a visual identity. There was no deeper work. You know, there was no deeper sort of positioning work or strategy needed. Um, but we just designed the kind of identity and the movement. But what I thought again to go back to that, like the garments thing. What's quite interesting is being at the event and seeing it all there. I know that from the discussions we'd had with Ogilvy working on it, is that they're keen to make Nudgestock a bit of a bigger thing over time mm-hmm. and, you know, move it, maybe move it back to London potentially. I don't know if that's kind of a definite. But obviously there's there seems to be a sense of wanting it to kind of grow up a little bit. And often I think with the work that we do, it is that it is that signalling thing, isn't it, that sometimes when you're just kind of met with the fact that somebody's, put the effort in and the budget in to, to kind of create some work and it's sort of made the whole experience feel a little bit more proper, then that can quite often have quite transformative effect really. So the discussions that we've had with uh, the clients since the event, they, they've seemed really like, oh, it feels like we've, you know, it's really grown up and, you know, it's really kind of developed this year. So, yeah, so we were involved in doing that. And was it nice to see that in situ? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, like the event itself is great. I mean, it's funny, my interest in behavioral science is kind of just my interest in a bit of everything, really, because when, well, what sort of happened was before I had a child, basically, I used to live at the studio pretty much. And I did that because, not because I was sort of made to, but just because I, that was my way to get in the work to equality, really. So used to be there till god knows what time and then when i had my son i realized i wasn't going to be able to do that anymore so mm. i did use the opportunity really to when he when he was a little baby and quite there's quite a lot of sitting around that has to happen 
I did try and consume, like I tried to self-school a little bit and, you know, reading some of that stuff and, um, you know, like tried to consume loads of stuff because I was just like, right, well, I'm going to have to learn now. You know, I'm going to have to bring something else to the table, which isn't late nights. So that's what I did. And, you know, reading, I was already kind of familiar with Rory and, you know, and then reading some other stuff around, you know, anything that he kind of recommended, like Dan Ariely and things like that. But then from there, we'd got increasingly involved in projects where there was talk of kind of marketing and data. So, like I said, because the work that we'd done had always had kind of ideas quite central, it was natural progression, really, that we were getting asked to do projects that were kind of quite campaign-based. And I always remember probably the first time we had a situation where a client had gone, well, we've looked at some data and the work's not having the results we were hoping for, so it mustn't be right. And that was a bit of a shock to me, really. So I did, I was quite, I thought, well, I'm going to have to, maybe learn a bit more about this sort of thing which is I guess marketing which in the design world is I suppose uh, regarded as a separate thing I don't know whether the kind of climate's maybe a little bit different in the north of England so maybe London but where say in London there does seem to be a clear divide between you can go to a design agency or you can go to an advertising agency whereas I think certainly in Sheffield we get all sorts of different types of work coming through the door so getting into sort of behavioral science if you like and reading up a bit more about planning and writing and um like understanding you know brands and how they work and I just tried to not again not draw a line between anything and just try and be as aware as I could about everything and hopefully that's kind of helps really it kind of helps understand what the context of the work that we do is and like how's somebody going to use it what do we hope that it will do at the end of the day so that's how it that's how it kind of happened it came out of the uh, desperation of worrying that I was going to become stupid overnight due to tiredness <laughs> and uh, yeah it's just there's loads of good stuff that I don't know it was, it was loads of good stuff that came out of that time really and just trying to uh, understand as much as I could about um about everything just like the world of creative communication everything yeah and and becoming a parent as you said is such a significant change of your own status and and what you have available so I suppose it's a bit like a um a sportsman or a footballer say aging and losing their pace they have to add something else to their game yeah yeah they have to read loads of books (laughs) (laughs) read loads of books picture books no doubt (laughs) yeah that's it I was definitely uh I was definitely on that and I think there's um, there's a book called Anatomy of Humbug. Have you ever read that one? No, I have heard of it, but no, I've not read it. There's a bit in that which kind of almost summed up the whole, like basically what we do, like basically the whole sort of system of what we do. And it talks about digital and analogic communication. So they use, he uses like a digital clock face as a, well, he uses a clock face as an example so a digital clock face will say it's 227 that's your information you know what i mean you can't get that wrong really so long as you understand what a two a two and a seven is but an analog clock face will give you that information spatially so the idea is that there it is that message in the signaling thing where there will be a message but the way that you say it the way it's delivered that's analogic so that's like so if i see you in the street walk past and say hello the information is the word hello, but the way I've said it will have so much more kind of impact than just the word itself. So yeah. it becomes like you can't get away from that. So you can't say anything without having a way that you've said it. And actually getting more complicated is what you don't say also has a bearing. And in a way, it was like that's basically what we do, isn't it? That's basically the whole of yeah. what we do. It's not just what we're saying. It's how it's delivered. You know, going back to being in the room at Nudgestock and them feeling like they'd grown up a little bit because they've got this kind of identity that moved and had animated elements. It was not just the fact that it was, uh, you know, Nudgestock, it was also how it was being delivered visually. Yeah, and then th- that is exactly where the overlap lies between whether you're coming from a marketing or design perspective, anyone who's involved in communications, that overlap into behavioural sciences is, is so significant. And the Messaging versus signaling is exactly that because it's all about the context. My favorite example is from Bob Hoffman, 
who says if you walk into a room and announce that you're the best looking person in that room, what you've said is one thing, but actually what you've communicated is is something entirely different, and that's that you're a bit of a prick. Yeah, yeah. So this, so Nudstock was 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 down south, and as you as you alluded to, we I believe they are taking it on the road next year, but no doubt it will remain down south. Mm. Would you say that Sheffield punches above its weight being up north, or do you typically find yourself having this pull down south for events or or, or whatever it might be? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it that the north has got some brilliant, brilliant creative people in the north. So. It's not like a kind of barren landscape where, you know, there's it's all going on in London and, you know, like there's us in Sheffield and nobody else. There's like tons of brilliant people in the north of England. I think um, I do I do actually feel like in a way the city punches above its weight, but maybe the only people that know that are people like me that live in Sheffield, really, because it's quite close to my heart now. But we actually, we joined the DNAD this year sort of as a member for the first time. And it's a really great organisation, the DNAD is. But whenever they have anything, which is invariably down south, um, when they send the little questionnaire back, that is the thing I'm always saying is, uh, let's get it back up here. We need more of this stuff up here. And almost like donating our space and going, you can have it here if you want. But there's lots of, they do lots of brilliant stuff in London. And I think that if it was more stretched across the country, it would be even more brilliant, really. Yeah, well, um, no, I agree. I think there's creative communities spread nationwide, and it's um, it's important that that London isn't allowed to just become this little bubble that it that it I suppose kind of is in some respects. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, in a way, I remember when I worked at, when I did a placement in Bristol. Actually, this guy said, um, "Oh, I'm really proud to be flying the flag for creativity outside of London." And I've always remembered that that it's kind of in a way, I'm slightly proud that you know, we're able to create work that, well, I think is all right. <laughs> uh, and it's not, it's not in London where you'd expect it to be. And uh, I think that's a massive part of our identity, actually being in Sheffield where we are. Yeah. Have you ever considered venturing down South? Has the, has the agency ever considered having an, any other premises down South? Well, I think that a lot of our clients, I mean, we do tend to go to London a lot. A lot of our clients are actually London based. So I think it's been kind of talked about before in a bit of a kind of like jokey way. Oh, you can go and set up the London office or whatever. Um, but uh, it's I don't think really it would, I mean, I don't think it would ever really be a serious thing to happen because, like I say, I think that being in this city plays so much to kind of our identity as a studio and who we are and the type of work we make and our opinions, I suppose. Asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So we've had a couple in, Lee, starting with Matt, who is a designer. He has asked, what are your thoughts on Comic Sans? (laughs) Um, uh, Well, I think that probably because... um, because I don't tend to do that like kind of granular work, I've bec- I've let go of my kind of a f- being really offended by typefaces. But there's been like what I think's been quite interesting about Comic Sans is there's been some other projects that have kind of span out of that one font that have actually been like quite good conceptual projects. So years ago, I went to the Royal College of Arts end of year show, and somebody had taken Comic Sans and then done. Uh, humorous sans and I think serious sans and then there was another one that was hilarious sans so what they'd done is they'd almost built around that typeface various levels of ugliness where serious was quite nice and then other ones were like you went up to comic and then hilarious was ridiculous it was like even more ugly than comic sans so without I don't really comic sans doesn't really enter my field of vision that much to be honest but um I, do, I suppose that project just came to mind because what I thought was quite interesting about it is when you've got something that's got, it comes attached with it a certain meaning, doesn't it? I think it's quite interesting that someone took that meaning and tried to do something with it. So it's not really an answer, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't probably use it in a project, but I just thought it was good as a bit of a jump off point really to doing an interesting project from it. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's quite refreshing your point there that you've, you've, I guess you've kind of let go of, of any 
feelings to or towards or against a font. But again, to be honest, that echoes our earlier point about whether something's effective or not. It's not really a like or do not like. So it's a it's another Murray Calder false binary. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I, I recall seeing something probably a couple of years ago now where Comic Sans on a legibility scale had scored significantly higher than most common fonts mm. and, and therein lies the argument to use it in certain um textbooks for children of certain yeah, age yeah, yeah. because of the legibility so yeah, yeah I, think it's, I think it's more about what's effective rather than let's all hate on comic sans but uh, it's certainly not one for, for, for my gravestone it gets back to that you know like understanding where the work is being used and i do wonder sometimes whether kind of like the di- graphic design industry i'm not saying like so you must use comic sans i'm just saying that understanding where the work is being used is something that's probably quite common in other design disciplines you know like product design or architecture and i wonder whether we kind of sometimes miss that really in favor of a bit of a conversation about craft or like what something looks like yeah and and it's easy for designers probably more so when you start off to 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 almost behave and operate like stylists so you're you just want something to look aesthetically beautiful and everything kind of tends towards looking you know incorporating your favorite typefaces or whatever it might be um, and following trends which certainly in my world which is which is more marketing and advertising I suppose versus uh, pure design industry is the last place you want to be where you all look and sound the same yeah I mean I I always think though it's um, I don't know it's like you know when you see badly designed ads are kind of you know they're kind of like as wrong as designed with no ideas in them so it's it's like it'd be good to see a kind of like bit more of a mixing of those two things so everybody was kind of you know had a standard had their standards at a certain level really and question two comes from david who is an art director he has asked do designers spend too much time behind a screen and not enough time messing around with marker pens and letter sets. So I think David's showing his age there a bit by mentioning letter set. Yeah, I mean, it's probably true that we spend a bit too much time behind screens. Um, whether it's uh, getting back to making or just getting away from the screen and back to the people who you're doing the work with and for, yeah, I would agree that like being at a screen is probably not the best place for that. You know, I know other designers that are, you know, they just they use the screen for doing, and they come away from it for thinking and any other parts of making stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I, I would say that it's probably we're going to find, aren't we, in years to come, there'll be a piece of research which basically tells us that all those years that we stared at this like little glass rectangle, it did something to our brains which didn't enable the right kind of free thinking. So, yeah, mm. I think get away from the screen whenever you can, whether that's like getting pens out and paint or whether it's just posing as a mature student at an open day. Getting away from it is definitely um, a thing that's kind of a good thing to do, really. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I, I, I actually used Letraset. I yeah, still yeah. have some Letraset, but no, I've never used it in the, well, not in the last few years anyhow. I'm a big fan of marker pens and pads, though. Yeah, yeah, we've done quite a lot of kind of uh, projects where, you know, the the like the physical mark making has become like part of the graphic language, and uh, it's definitely something that we do get back get back to occasionally. Yeah, and and I think um, it's something that we're very conscious of here. We try and encourage people not to just spend the entire working day behind a screen. But equally, your your earlier point about. Um, just immersing yourself in everything to do with the brief and the client and the context of the problem and then walking away from it which which often leads to to some sort of breakthrough um, it's hard to do when you're when you're sat behind a screen all day yeah yeah I mean I think the the amount of times that the idea will actually come when you're on your journey from home uh, from work back to home or like really late at night you know there's no once you start to notice that once you realise it's not just a coincidence, you can actually create that situation a bit more. Um, yeah. It's definitely like it is away from the screen is probably where the brain starts to function a bit more. And also you've got to kind of slightly forget about the work. So it almost passes it back to your subconscious a little bit. And it's that that solves the problem. Yeah, there's a behavioural scientist in you talking now. 
<laughs> yeah, well, maybe, maybe. Uh, so, so the final part of the interview, Lee, is our four pertinent poses. Uh, so, so number one, what advice would you give to your younger self apart from reading The Guardian? <laughs> yeah, under- yeah, understand what The Guardian actually is before you think people are talking about the Middle Witch Guardian is one. Um, I guess, uh, I, I guess, really, I suppose my introduction into the world of writing if I'd have listened a little bit more to what I was good at and not focused quite so quickly when I was younger, then I might have been able to develop this a little bit more and a little bit earlier, if you see what I mean. So I kind of got it into my head that, oh, well, it's going to have to be visual. That's all I can do. And yet Mm. when I think back, I was actually quite good (laughs) in, uh, I was quite good at school in English. And that's probably, I was actually getting better grades in English than I was in art despite going, no, it's definitely art that I need to do. So I guess it's um, it's interesting. If you kind of listen to what you're good at a little bit more, then you can actually discover a bit more about yourself. I was recently at a university talking to some students, and uh, one of the students had showed me a design portfolio on a website, and then she had a link on a website to her illustration work as well. Now, her illustration work was great. So I was kind of saying to her, after she told me that she really wanted to be a designer, I was like, right, well, let's imagine I've got two briefs that are in sealed envelopes. One of them's a graphics one and one of them's an illustration one. Which brief do you want to do? And she was going, oh, maybe it's the illustration one. And it was just quite interesting that once she kind of connected with what she was really naturally really good at, it sort of got her to think a little bit more about the identity of her work and what she could push or and that would hopefully help next time she had a, a project brief that she could bring in a bit of her ability as an illustrator into that. I think I think certainly from my perspective, and it's something that I've talked about um, outside of the pod quite passionately about, is when you is is the route that people or the route that people are almost forced to take into our industry is you need to you need to be good at drawing as a child, which which leads you into to the art and arts at school which is typically drawing and painting or or, you know certain things in between and only then if you're fortunate enough to have some sort of design lessons available typically they're only at sixth form so you've already had to jump the hurdle of or tick the box of being able to draw or paint Um, and then latterly you, you you might take an art foundation course and it's only then certainly from my perspective and lots of people I know and talk to that that graphic design and advertising and all the sexy stuff that I'm into is even is even on your radar. I think there's a really strong argument to present design in its many guises at an earlier stage in the education system, so that so that more people are aware of it. Yeah, I mean, it's you always come up. I always come up against that thing where when people ask you, you know, what do you do, and you go, I'm a designer, and they say, what do you design? And then you have to kind of like go through that slightly uncomfortable like, yeah. process of trying to describe it. But and I guess that education could come a lot sooner, really, because it's sort of graphic design is kind of everything that you probably look at when you leave the house, really, um, that isn't an object or is it like is two dimensional? Absolutely. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I think I think this is. Um, I think this is pitch briefs that ask you to define your quote-unquote approach because I think that's quite ambiguous, isn't it? What's your approach to this project? I'm not going to get into the whole should we pitch or should we not because like, I think that's in, for another day. But when you get a brief uh, that's a pitch, which is a kind of – it's quite a dangerous scenario to be in anyway. I think when you're asked to give your approach, that can mean a whole kind of plethora of things, can't it? It can mean – What's your approach to designing this piece of work? What colours are you going to use? What, et cetera, what are the images going to look like? Or it can be what stages are you going to go through? And I think we probably need some kind of standardising of language because I don't know whether you've ever been in this situation, but you know, occasionally when you pitch for things, you can sometimes be going in with something that's not entirely what they're expecting to see. You know, and that might, yeah. that might be that you've only described the stages you'll go through and they're expecting to see more than that or or the opposite of that can happen. So we probably need like a bit of a, you know, tell me the stages you'll go through or show me some stuff. 
asking that question also suggests that there is a right answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which there can't be. That's it. I mean, it's there's an interesting. There's a really uh, good designer, that, a pentagram designer, who writes some brilliant articles called Michael Beirut, and his uh, he wrote a really good thing that was like, you know, you go through that process and you describe your process as in, like, let's say it's a one, two, three thing, but quite often the solution to a project can be quite a random thing really it might not always conform to those processes and uh, sometimes it's it's just about giving someone the confidence that they think oh you could go through the processes so I can take that box so there you go you get the project if you like and it's and it's hard to measure creativity well in fact it's it's probably impossible And, and Rory Sutherland countless times has talked about our um precisely this type of instance where something might happen or an idea might come about, but you post-rationalise it yeah. to to give a reason that sounds plausible, that that does make sense, like almost that there, there is a linear process, whereas more often than not, it, it won't be a linear process and it could be something, you know, quite ridiculous that led to having an idea, but you, you, you have an urge to appeal to the kind of rational brain and, and for it to make sense. That's it, yeah. it's uh, Well, it is quite a random... It's quite a random process a lot of the time, really. You you go through the stages in order to manage that random process, probably. Yeah. Uh, so number three, and I know like lots of parents, you've rediscovered a, a, an appreciation of Roald Dahl books, so that that can influence your answer. But the question is, any books that you would recommend? Uh, yeah. Well, there's probably loads, uh, but not to keep you here all day. I reckon so. To go like just traditional sort of design, if you like, if there are anybody, any designers listening, there's a book by Michael Beirut, which is called How To, and then it's got like a massive list after it. And it's a really good, um, honest account of what being a designer is actually like, which you don't often get. So he shows work in that book, which is, um, which is like stuff that didn't go, you know, the thing you couldn't get the client to agree to and things like that. And it's just quite fascinating because it doesn't, it doesn't like kind of polish it up or anything like that. It just gives it you. When I read that book, I was like, yeah, this is kind of sounds like what my day to day is like, which is quite good. (laughs) And uh, so there's to go a bit wider than that. There's like, um, there's a book called made to stick. um, And I think it's by what they call chip and ed heath i think is it heath i don't know i might have got that wrong but the book is called made to stick and Mm -hmm. it's basically a book about how we can get ideas to stick um and it's basically i reckon it's the best opening four pages of a book that's non-fiction that i've ever read and it's wow. it properly gets you in there, and it's really really good. Their kind of idea is that they're 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 trying to sort of say, well, there could be some some like kind of rough rules that you could that you could follow to try and get your ideas to stick a bit more. And there's some stuff in there that I totally use day to day. Really, is, is to just kind of keep remembering what they talk about in that book. It's really good. Any any that you can share? One of them is um, they talk about, oh, God, sorry, the people in our studio are going to be, they get so bored of me talking about this. So <laughs> it's, um, it, They talk about how journalists are taught how to write articles and it's like a kind of inverted triangle model where you start with the broader information that gives you what you need to know and you get more and more detailed as you move down the triangle and they do that so that if another story comes in, that you can literally just chop off the bottom and the, the article will still make sense. And it's that idea of not burying the lead, which is certainly within writing, I think, that's um, that's such a kind of useful little rule that you can almost, you could take a bit of text, read it, and almost change the order of what was said and make it load stronger because the bit often that is the lead or the most interesting bit might quite often be towards the end of the passage of text rather than the first thing you read. Our colleague, um, our PR director here, Natalie, she uses that with all of her press releases. I think it's quite a a, um, a fairly common uh, style for her to adopt. Yeah, yeah. For, for that reason. Yeah, and then the last one was um, that Creativity Inc. book, which is that book about Pixar, and I think it's Ed Catmull that wrote that. And it's just like, I think it's one of the best books i've ever read about creating creative endeavor 
and just that like how committed they are to the process of creating a piece of work and doing that thing where they go you know it is going to be crap to start off with and you have to accept that I mean that is like one of the best tips ever isn't it like you've got to accept that it's going to be crap to begin with and as soon as you do that it's like really freeing because you're not trying to get that like perfect thing there's there's Another thing, isn't there, that's like, don't ask if it's perfect, just ask if it's moved the project forward at all. And, yeah, all that comes out of that Creativity Inc. book. It's just brilliant. That book is absolutely amazing. Awesome. Well, we'll, we'll link to all of those on the episode. Uh, do you have a favourite Roald Dahl book? I'm dying to know now. Uh, well, because he's still a little bit young, so I've not really gone from, you know, like he hasn't got the patience to go through an entire one, but we have watched both charlie and the chocolate film uh, charlie and the chocolate factory films now probably i'd say we're into the hundreds of times so <laughs> i've got to start there because i literally i reckon i know that script now like off by heart i should do it as like a kind of test to see if i can get from the beginning to the end of the film <laughs> in character in character yeah in all the characters uh, and finally, we always dedicate the show to somebody and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who also has to give their reason why. Well, this is, I mean, this is going to seem a bit odd because the person, I can't remember her full name, which is a bit embarrassing. I'm pretty sure it's Claire Williams. Now, she was a lecturer at my college um, in Cheshire, where we went in Northwich. And so I did a BTEC in graphic design, and the course that I'd walked into was quite old-fashioned, and it wasn't really the most cutting-edge of graphic design experiences ever. Like, we did a um, one of the college trips was to go and draw some old cars in a museum. So it wasn't, you know what I mean, it wasn't going to get us into university quite clearly. And she turned up and gave everybody a bit of a kick up the arse and was kind of hated for it initially, you know, because it was a bit, it was quite a jolt because she was like, look, if you don't pull your fingers out, then you're just not going to go anywhere. And then as we got to know her a bit more, she properly dedicated some time to getting my portfolio into a state that might get me into university. And when she did that, she was actually teaching another class and I used to sort of sneak in and she would sort of like sneak, sneak over to one side and give me advice about what to do with this work and how to present it and subsequently I she basically helped me get into university and without without her I'd pretty much not be doing what I'm doing I think so yeah I had to kind of think about it quite quite carefully but if only I was absolutely sure (laughs) what her full name was terrible but yeah if she if there's any way of anyone finding out then uh, yeah she was amazing Oh, that's, a, that's a very worthy dedication. You should try and find it. You should try and look her up, at least, yeah, to yeah. ping her a message. I tried to. It's like it's now an impossible because the actual college is now closed, which is really sad because I don't know what kids in that part of the country are now going to do who are really into art and design and you know just want to do that. God knows what they'll do now. But, yeah, it's now closed, so it's sort of now an impossible to try and find any actual information about that place. Oh, well, a, well, a worthy dedication nonetheless. Yeah, I reckon. So as a, as a final call to action, uh, head over to this episode online and we'll share all of the links to everything discussed in the last hour. How else can people get more Lee Davies? Well, I think that um, probably the best place is to follow the studio, I think, on, uh, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. It's just Peter underscore and underscore Paul. Um, I think my own Twitter account is probably not the best place to look because I, I think that I, I'd like to think that I kind of uh, I was an early adopter, but what it actually is is I've got a really crap Twitter handle because I didn't understand how it worked. So it's just my full name and underscore thirty two because that's what my email was at the time. But um, I think in terms of stuff that would be actually useful to you, I tend to manage our um, Twitter account through the studio, so most of what happens in our studio ends up on there. So I think that'd probably be the best place, really. But you do share some wonderful private eye covers on your own personal Twitter account. Yeah, they're yeah, they're amazing because it goes back to that thing, you know, like that is work that's not all that refined, but is like really good at the same time. It is, yeah. No, I I hundred percent agree.
Well, thank you so much for joining us, Lee. It's been a, a real pleasure, as I expected, to talk again. Yeah, thanks very much. And thank you to everyone listening. Please continue to share and leave reviews so we can hopefully reach more people and correct the ratio of nonsense that's being spouted by Gary V and the like. Get in touch with questions to put to our guests, feedback and anything else you want to share by emailing hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.